Warning, the following show is intended for mature audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome back. Coffee with the Johns. June 4th. Mm-hmm. Friday, June 4th. Oh my goodness, this year is going by. It's free donut day at Duncan. Because that matters. Yeah, you buy, you buy a drink and you get a, get a free donut out this morning. Yeah. Remember, uh, a second on the lips is a lifetime on the hips. A lifetime on the hips. There you go. All right. We got a lot going on today. We um, we have a lot of real estate news that we're going to be covering. Uh, um, a possible stability in the market, maybe. Uh, there's some trends developing that in that area. There's a really cool article I read on um, the actual cost of building a house. So it goes over everything, everything from foundation to framing, everything, what the actual cost has been. So we're going to break that down. Very cool article. Uh, We're going to go into uh, a lot of articles on more automation in the job market. More and more companies uh, embrace AI, embrace a lot of things that is going to help them pretty much hire less people, move faster, more efficiency. So it's going to affect the job market. It's going to affect the cost of living, of consumer goods, of all these things. That's going to be very interesting. And some politics mixed in there as far as Texas saying, you know, they're preparing for the next pandemic. I thought that was very interesting. Long as article. Uh, But we'll hit some just bullet points on that. And the IRS is going after people in Puerto Rico. So, yeah. So a lot of cool, interesting topics for today. So make sure you hit that thumbs up. Uh, Give us some love. Give us some support. Share with your friends. Um, Mr. LJ is in the house. Man, just for him being here, I feel like we should start with politics. I know. That's, yeah, a, it's no. actually early in the morning he hate, for him, he, too. He hates talking politics. That's why. Um, but <laughs> we'll start with some real estate, as we usually do. Um, real estate show. Yes, it's a show about real estate trends. But everything affects it. With that being said, let's see. What do you have going on? Let, let's start with your stuff. Uh, so you have uh, some from Barron's News. What, what do you have here? Um... I'll do with one is uh, the title of it was from housing wires is the housing market or is housing market demand starting to weaken and i was kind of like huh that's interesting so nearly 50 percent of homes sold for more than their list price during the four weeks ending may 16th that's what's crazy half the house is sold for over list price but there is a sign that housing market demand may be reaching its peak according to the recent study from redfin Pending sales for the seven-day period ending May 16th were down 10% from four weeks prior, compared to 8% increase during the same period in 2019. Mortgage mortgage purchase applications also decreased 4% week over week. Make no mistake, the housing market is still very hot and will remain hot for the rest of the year, said Daniel Fairweather, Redfin chief economist. But there may be signs that some buyers would rather spend their money on restaurants, vacations, and other things that have held back on the past year instead of on housing, now the threat of the pandemic is dissipating in America. New listings of homes for sale were down 12% from the same period in 2019 and active listings are, and, and active listings. The number of homes listed for sale at any point during the period fell 49% from the same period in 2019. 
They're using 2019 because obviously 2020. So astronomically yeah. skewed. Yeah. This is, hap- this is happening. Of course, with prices remaining astronomically high, home prices were recently reported at a record high of 352.975 and were up 24% year over year. Asking prices increased to 358.957, also a record high. Homes in May are also on the market for an average of only 17 days. So, me, when I read it, I was like, I'm not shocked to see those things. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, it can't keep pacing at 10% year over year increases over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, we're on nine, 10 months of double digit appreciation right. or like eventually it's going to reach a point to where it's like, okay, your pre people are being priced out. You had a massive drop of interest rates, a bunch of cash going into people's pockets. that didn't have it. They're like, Oh, I can go afford a home now. And they're going to buy houses and it's bidding prices up and people priced out. So it doesn't surprise me at all that this is happening. Um, and honestly, I'm shocked that it's taken this long that you've had almost, years worth of double digit appreciation month over month it's like my god how yeah. much further can this go so i don't i wouldn't be surprised to see things it's still hot like they said but things start to stable off uh to where you don't see these massive price increases as of competitive as competitiveness buyers market uh that has been in the recent so you recently uh released the market update for san antonio oh um so if you guys want it, make sure you text MARKET to 210-794-9898, and you can uh, see the data and the trends, the slides, the zip code, get a whole list of the zip codes, everything. Um, in that market update, are you seeing more inventory starting to kind of come into the market? And even even if it is being absorbed, but are we seeing more sellers or are we still seeing, you know, how, how are you seeing the inventory? I mean, the inventory did rise a little bit but it rose like from 0.12 to 0.7 so i mean it rose a little bit which is not typical for this time of year but it's also one of those that you when you're starting so damn low and it just goes up 0.05 or five basis points it's like yeah not like a big jump like we're talking two more actual an extra two tenths of uh inventory on the market so um, right. you've seen a little bit, but it's also uh, the sales volume is still extremely strong. So people are putting on the market and those houses are getting absorbed. So you haven't got to the point yet where houses are truly outpacing buyers absorbing the property. So, and even, even months of inventory going up. I mean, in reality, it's like this market needs to stable off before we see anything of saying, you know, oh, it's going in any direction. It's like we are not even stable we're not even at a normal market what yeah. would be a summertime market right so even if it went up it's like oh it's weird for the summertime it's like but it's not we're still under what summer months should be so yeah yeah it's oh yeah insane. i mean our, our sales volumes up are like what was it the title of it they hit a triple double or yes uh, yeah we had a what was it double digit average price increase double digit sales volume increase and double digit median sales price increase Yep. Like, I think that was the first time where I saw all three in double-digit appreciation margins uh, on a year-over-year basis. Yeah, so. so it's not it's not only LeBron that does triple doubles; San Antonio real estate does as well. <laughs> yeah, but it's also coming back to like sales volume increased like twenty five percent. Was like, well, yeah, May of twenty twenty was like kind of really the bottom of sales on April May was the bottom of it. So yeah. as things start picking up and we start the next couple months, it's like, okay, how are we pacing? compared to months last year, because I think it was like June, July is when it really started to take take off. So I'll have that information August. So another five, or not five, three months, I'll kind of have the two, three months, I'll start to have some of that information to see how we're truly comparing to year over year on those. 
Well, also, what's good for you guys to keep in mind is that um, this month, at the end of this month, we're actually going to be releasing the quarterly update of the whole Texas market. So in that quarterly update, you're going to have uh, Austin, Houston, Dallas, and of course, the full San Antonio market update. So at least you're going to be able to start comparing and you can go back in our YouTube channel and see, you know, the previous quarters. So you can start comparing like quarter over quarter. How is this progressing? Because that's how you analyze and understand trends. You look at past data, you look at the mo where everything is moving, where everything is going, and you can start kind of gauging, all right, are we really slowing down? What's normal? What's not? And because this data is, a lot of it we've compiled over years, so we yeah. can have some historical along with just current growth. Yeah, so I, think we're, I have back to full year that had this information of every a few glitches in there here and there but we even uh, pulled but, uh, further data just to even remember when we were looking at like over the course of 10 years we went back past 2008 just to see historical averages and like what does real estate do over the course of because everybody says you know there's so many people right now it's like oh don't buy real estate right now it's overpriced it's whatever yes don't buy it if it's a speculative play on your you're end. buying it just because you want to buy be a homeowner plan on st not thinking long term like we just had right. that gentleman that made a comment where it's like you're going to be buying it for a house or a homestead and your budget can afford it price doesn't oh. shouldn't be it's a factor but it's not a big factor but some people are like well i just don't want to get stuck with something that it's going to lose value in the next couple of years like you shouldn't be buying a house yeah. like because you're thinking of it short term buying a home for your homestead unless this is an investment property should not be thought of like it's two separate things completely yes it's in an investment but it's mm -hmm. a massive liability until you sell that house in the future yeah. um, it's just yeah so know. i mean exactly that but oh oh yeah um <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah. wow wow <laughs> you gotta have it right there like uh, in the face. anyway i'm gonna have to put a well no i did rate this show uh ma so a. it's for yeah. mature audiences um <laughs> But yeah, it's it, you got to understand why you're buying it. You got to hold on to it. If you're being speculative and all that, then yes, you got to get yourself a hell of a deal because in the short term, we don't know what the market is going to do. We don't know what's going to happen. And even when you look at the real estate market and you're looking at, you know, you're saying, okay, but the market is doing this. Yes, but you don't know macro what trends or changes are going to happen. You don't know if... Uh, policy when people hate that we talk politics if texas comes out with some back assword policy or something whatever like california does or new york does we can see an exodus of people just how we've seen them in those states yeah. then all of a sudden your real estate goes to shit so you know you got to pay attention you got to be careful but usually over not usually but over the course of 10 years real estate always goes up you know or it has always gone up yeah over the i mean course of history Unless the monetary system changes and everything, which... Which I, I got an article in here about that. Could be coming. Could be coming. Russia. Uh, what about forbearances? So I see a few articles here on forbearance, extensions uh, and stuff. Yeah, what got, do you got going got on there? some uh, interesting stuff there. So what do we got? The few... Um, yeah, FHFA extends forbearance for rental properties. So, I mean, that, that's... You struggle with that, too. I was mimicking... Oh, oh yeah, FHFA. Mimicking, that's, not the yep. that's what it was. That's, that's John trying to say. Sure. 
The Federal Housing Authority or Federal Housing Finance Agency has extended forbearance options for multifamily properties through the end of September. So when I'm saying like rental properties, are this is more multifamily uh, spaced. The option to put off debt payments for federally backed multifamily properties had been slated to expire at the end of June. The regulators also extended protections for tenants that property owners must adhere to in order to access excess forbearance. The FHFA made it clear that federal forbearance options, including some caveats for property owners in the form of protections for tenants. Whether debt payments are on hold, property owners must notify their tenants of those protections. So if you're a tenant in a house and your landlord went into a forbearance, they should have notified you saying, hey, we're having problems making payments. During forbearance, property owners can't evict tenants solely for non-payments for rent. Landlords also can't charge late fees or penalties for non-payment of rent. They must also give tenants flexibility to repay the rent over time, not necessarily in a lump sum. If property owners do evict, they must give tenants at least a month's notice to leave. And this was the stat that I, I found interesting. As as of Freddie Mac's most recent report, there are 1,154 securitized loans in forbearance. So only a thousand, uh, eleven hundred properties of theirs. I was like, man, that's a very small number. I feel like, yeah. And it says representing about two point, only two point one percent of the GSC's total securitized unpaid principal balance. For those whose forbearance has ended, more than eighty-two percent by loan count are currently making payments or have fully repaid the money owed. So that's good news that you're not going to have a massive multifamily crash or something like that. So only eleven hundred properties across the entire nation's. A, that's pretty good. I don't know their. Their portfolio size, I guess it represents 2.1% of it, but uh, you have a lot of multifamily properties doing well and coming out of the pandemic. So it's like, hmm, that's, that's good to know. Well, I mean, we had seen in previous data too that uh, a lot of multifamily investors and everything, they weren't hurting all that much. I mean, a lot of them weren't seeing like massive uh, rental defaults or anything like that. They were, we were seeing them more in the cities like New York, you know, in the major uh, like city areas where people were getting the hell out of there, going to suburb areas. But I remember seeing more stats on multifamily and everything that they're like, yeah, you know, a few people have been a little bit late or breaking up their monthly payment or something, but not every, like they didn't see like a massive default in uh in well, you really didn't see a massive default anywhere yeah that was that was fantastic news to see that uh they're very low numbers so when everyone's talking oh i'm waiting for the real estate market to crash waiting for it to crash it's like i think you may be worried waiting a, a long time for that to actually happen so yeah and uh, then what, what says fewer people are uh the mini mortgage application? Well, I have another one here about the forbearance, and this one's more yeah. single-family related. So the forbearance numbers dropped to th for the third consecutive month. The total number of loans in forbearance managed to fall three basis points last week to 4.22 of services portfolio volume, according to a report from the Mortgage Bankers Association. A drop-off in the number of exits did mark a slower decline than in recent weeks, however. Monday's data still marks three consecutive months of downward trends of forbearance volume. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac continue to boast the smallest share of loans in forbearance, down three basis points last week to 2.21 of their portfolio. So they're down below 3, I mean 2.2 on total loans as well. Jeannie Mae loans also fell two basis points to 5.59, while the forbearance share of portfolio loans and private label securities remain the same relative to the prior week at 8.26. Mm. Overall, the NBA estimates there are approximately 2.1 million homeowners in some form of 
mortgage postponement. A recent early look at Black Knight's delinquency numbers re- revealed that there are still 1.8 million homeowners that are 90 days past due, four times as many there were prior to the pandemic. So still some distress, but things are coming out of it. All right. So, I mean, yeah, we're, I mean, the market overall is just what we talk about. Like, I don't think we're cooling down. Market is local. Keep that in mind, people. Market, you know, the real estate market, it depends on where you live and you know, how your local market is. But in Texas, I don't see it. You know, it might stable off a little bit, like we said, like it get into where closer to where it should be, but it's not going to necessarily decrease or drop or anything because, I mean, affordability is the biggest key in the, in the country right now, especially as we see more and more inflation. Affordability is going to be mm. a, an even bigger issue, right? So as affordability becomes an issue, Texas is a very affordable place to live. You know, comparatively and, to other places, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and then San Antonio compared to compared uh, compared to yeah, compared <laughs> to Austin and Dallas and stuff, much more affordable to live in mm-hmm. San Antonio, right? And compared to Austin, you're an hour away. So yeah. you know, all of those things when you're looking at for investing, moving, and all that, you got to look at that data because it does matter. Yeah. Well, there's one article I, I was when I was doing research and stuff. There wasn't a lot of substance to it, but it was about the Australian uh, market where Sydney, Australia's home prices are increasing at $1,000 a day. $1,000 a day. Day. For the last couple months, there's well, an article Australia- about that. It's like how fast Sydney, Australia is like pricing where somebody went into the prop- beginning of the market yeah. in January trying to find a house they could barely afford anything and they were trying to find something they wanted and then prices just escalated so quickly that they got priced out of the market so fast that they're just like, we can't even afford anything. So I remember a few years ago, I actually uh, met, with, uh, met this girl from, lady from Australia. She was a real estate investor. Um, and she was telling me about the Australian real estate market and she was saying how insane it is. She says, first of all, with legal with the government with the laws with the financing like you can't get bank loans like you get here like 30-year loans and stuff like that they're like no they don't do loans that far out like they do short loans you got to come in with a lot of money your monthly payments are not you know uh twelve hundred dollars your monthly payments are more like four thousand you know so because you're doing such small loans and everything like that so she's like doing real estate over there at least the way that we do it here is very hard for them. And then she was saying a lot of people from Asia, so you have China and everybody that they come with so much money, they're buying up all the real estate there, you know, as investments, as hedges against inflation, as, you know, all the dumb shit that China's doing and everything. So it's like, it protects them. Um, But yeah, I mean, Australia seems like it's always been a very crazy real estate market. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then the other one that you were talking about, the mortgage applications that, people are submitting a mortgage application so another sign that some of these things are starting to stable off because i mean the first part of home buying process is you got to get pre-approved to make sure you can get a loan so that's where like that's kind of the very beginning start button for uh real estate so mortgage applications dropped for the second straight week this time down four percent for the week ending may 28 2021 according to the mortgage the mba mortgage bankers association Tight housing inventory obstacles to a faster rate of new construction and rapidly rising home prices continue to hold back purchase activity. The government purchase index declined to its lowest level in over a year and has now decreased year over year for five straight weeks. Purchase applications were down almost 2% from a year ago, but that 
was compared to a week of Memorial Day, compared to the week of Memorial Day 2020. Refinance activity dropped for the second straight week as well, even as the 30-year fixed rate decreased slightly to 3.17. Refinance share of activity decreased 60 to 61.3% of the total mortgage applications from 61.4, so just 0.1 from the previous week. The FHF, the FHA shares <laughs> of total mortgage application increased to 9.6% from 9.1% the week prior, but the VA share of total mortgage applications decreased to 10.9 from 11.2. Interesting. But my opinion doesn't mean shit. I mean, you know, like you look at these numbers, they're so small. It could be literally just any reason why this is happening a lot of their data does come in a little bit behind they're pulling in from bag data and everything so yeah interesting but nothing noteworthy now if we start seeing i think like we talked about before about the market updates and everything we start seeing a trend developing that we start seeing this is another month another month another month and it keeps dropping keeps dropping that's okay now there is something happening in the market. Something is changing. Well, that's what said. This article even says like decreased year over year for the five for the past five straight weeks. So five weeks in a row that the applications are dropped. So it's like, and then you add that to the housing staying on the market or um, that is competitive offer. Some of the stuff we talked about in the first article yeah. where it's like it seems like a trend is developing. That's like, hey, prices have risen so much that people are now being priced out of the market, where it's finding its new normal uh, for where things are at. And and keep in mind, people, uh, all of these articles that we're referencing, I mean, a lot of them are much more extensive than what we're covering. And they have graphs, charts, everything, a lot of cool information. All of these links are going to be uh, on our website after this goes live. So make sure to check back and that way you can review them yourself. Look at the charts, look at the data so you are better aware of the policies and everything that's coming down the line. Hey, podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if you want to get very exclusive insider tips and strategies that nobody else is getting, then you need to join our text community by texting podcast to 210-794-9898. That's 210-794-9898. Text the word podcast and you will start receiving insider information things that are happening that we're realizing that we're implementing in real time that other people have no access to. So make sure you text us now. Now back to this show. With that being said, I wanted to get into, I wanted to touch a topic that I've seen. It's been coming up. It's come in and out of the market a few times, but in the real estate investing space and is, will we see an end to wholesaling? Will states come out with a law that's going to ban wholesaling right we've heard it there are some states are coming out with some laws uh, regarding that you need a license uh all of this is because i mean we're seeing the realtors the board of realtor is uh looking at wholesalers like you're taking our market share yeah. you know and you don't have a license we're not getting our our cut here from what you're doing uh because Wholesaling essentially, more or less, you're acting like a real estate agent, right? You're yeah. getting a property, uh, somebody that looks that's looking to sell, and you're finding a buyer for them. Um, 
yes, that's the oversimplification of the term. You know, there's other uh, more details to go along with it, but that's what they see. The board of realtors, they're seeing that they're like, you are acting like an agent and you don't have a license. Therefore, you don't have the fiduciary responsibility to take care yeah, of it. That's the thing they're, they're separating. It's like wholesaling isn't selling properties. On your contract that's all you're selling and that's what they're hiding behind is like the contract holds a physical property value but you're selling paper you're not selling houses you're not wholesaling houses like no you're wholesaling contracts right. to purchase houses so much like you have the the futures market in um stock markets like it's a contract to do something but you sell that thing off before that contract gets executed yeah so it's the exact same thing it's like you're not actually buying the oil you're just buying the rights to buy the oil so then you sell that thing off. So same exact concept. And, and let's say what it is. The issue isn't what you're doing. The issue is that the board of realtors is not getting their cut. Like that's, that's one of the biggest issues. They'll, they want to hide behind, you know, oh, the fiduciary responsibilities and all this nonsense. But we know real estate agents that, yes, they have fiduciary responsibilities, but they're just, they're even worse than wholesalers with the level of ignorance. And the harm that they do to homeowners and stuff. So all that being said, it's like, it's just, in my opinion, like I said, I think it's just they're upset that they're not getting their their pound of flesh. Um, so if wholesaling is, so this is the point that I wanted to make more on this topic is that I don't really care what happens. You know, a lot of people right now are flipping the hell out, uh, mostly wholesalers, of course, because they're they're like, oh, my God, this is bullshit. They're going to ban wholesaling. You know, this is so wrong. We need to stand up against this. Good luck. Uh, yeah. I was like, I don't care. Yeah. Like, ban wholesaling. I don't care. You know what I mean? It doesn't affect me. It doesn't. It shouldn't affect really anybody. Yeah. I don't really care if they ban wholesaling or not or require you to have a license or not. I mean, those things to me, I'm like, well, I mean, you're still going to have plenty of shitty wholesale companies out there. It's like, they're just going to sidestep. It's like, fine, then I'll buy the house and resell it. Yeah. The transaction costs. Well, the shittiest wholesale companies, that's what they do. They call themselves realties. You know what I mean? And that's, they're still wholesaling. They just do double closes and stuff like that. So, so who will this affect? If wholesaling gets banned, if, or more like when wholesaling gets banned, who will this actually affect, right? So I believe you have, obviously, those that only do wholesaling. Those people that their whole idea of real estate is simply wholesaling houses. They, they, you talk to them and they're like, oh, I don't want to get into flipping because I don't want to manage contractors. I don't want to get into rentals because I don't want to manage, you know, I don't want to get the calls for the broken toilets or whatever I'm yeah. sure they come up with. Um, they don't want to be real investors, so they only want to do wholesaling. Yes, you should be worried because you are definitely going to be one of the people that gets affected. Um, the other people that we see are the ones that are not focusing on building the right connections and actually building, doing real estate investing the right way. What they're more doing is just being transactional. So they're just yeah. trying to find a property for low, sell it for high, and call it a day. They're not building connections. They're not understanding, you know, who are the good uh, investors that you should be connecting with, the lenders, the contractor. They're not building any kind of infrastructure behind this to help them out when the market changes, when there are shifts, when things happen. They have nobody that they can reach out to. 
they have nobody that they can tap into their level of uh, knowledge and experience because they're not worried about that. They'll wholesale a deal to whoever pays the most. They're not worried about building a continuous relationship with a buyer that can help them moving forward. Yeah. Or perhaps and be that's, partner. I mean, that, that's the, what the ABOR and Board of Realtors and Trek is going to hide behind. Like, you have somebody that doesn't know real estate buying real estate. Yeah. I was like, but then it's like, I look at it, it's like, there's no different than what, if you're going to attack that wholesaler, then you need to attack the wholesaler that buys and resells property unrepresented too. It's like they're selling it to ignorant people that don't, not necessarily ignorant or just somebody that gets swept up in the hype. But like, that's the reason government expands is because somebody is being taken advantage of that doesn't know it. it's got fallen into susceptible to high pressure sales tactics, kind of forced into a situation to extract money. Yeah. It's like, that's how good laws and regulations get put into place. Cause when that happens on enough times, enough scale, People step in to help protect them. That's what they're going to hide behind is like you're selling to somebody that doesn't know real estate. You have three people involved in a transaction and none of them have any kind of license or formal education and they're operating outside of the government bodies of real estate transactions. And I mean, it is true. We have uh, covered that plenty of times, how you do have wholesalers that truly don't care if you know what you're doing or not, as long as you're willing to pay them what they're asking for, um, it's not in their mind, it's not their problem, whether you know what you're doing or not. And you and I, you know, we, we disagree with that premise because one thing that we've always done when we were wholesaling is we wouldn't wholesale a deal that we knew had a lot of risk to somebody that was completely new, had never renovated a house, had never worked with contractors, had never done this, even though they were very eager, we wouldn't do it. You know, even though a lot of people was like, hey, I'm not here to think for them. I get it. I completely get it. I'm not saying you should. That being said, I also believe like doing the right thing is always doing the right thing. And you know, you know we know we've been in renovations and construction for so long that's like, I know you're going to lose your ass on this. And I just don't want you thinking about me every time you think about that investment involved in that transaction leaving a bad taste in your mouth then yeah we've been on properties before and we're being outbid by 30 35 grand and it's like my god that's what i was projecting to like actually have as profit was 35 grand now i'm getting outbid that amount and like and they were their plan was to flip it as well yeah so, oh, they were gonna flip it because like, like, if you were saying oh they're gonna keep it as a rental okay yeah you know over time it makes sense but they were gonna flip the house too so cool. it's like Okay. You have this new level and it, it, it creeps into real estate markets. I mean, I know talking to people that happened 2005, six, seven, eight, leading up to it. It's like they were buying it, betting that the house is going to be worth more than it was today. It's like, well, I'm not looking at the comps today because I know in six months it's going to be worth substantially more. And yeah. then they're buying it and then selling it at that point. And they're baking that whole premise of making a profit on the house being worth significantly more than what it would be today if you sold it. I was, I was helping a gentleman yesterday look at comps and it's like, God, like look at these houses and what their current ARVs are to what discounts there are on the market to current conditions. It's like mm. the level of rehab that that house needs, like it wouldn't work. It's like the only way it makes sense is like if this one house closes or like more houses close and increase the prices in certain areas. Yeah. And it's like they're buying. It's like it was buying off the MLS to fix up to resell in the MLS. Like that's well. I mean, even right now, and we can share a case study here. We are doing a, I guess, a speculative play with a property we just bought because we saw the ARV on this house. 
and we looked at the neighborhood, we looked at the data, we look at where the neighborhood is located, and we're seeing, okay, the reason prices haven't shot up here yet is because nobody has put properties on the market yet. Like houses yeah. aren't really selling there. But as soon as they start, based on the data that we're seeing around that neighborhood and the quality of the homes and all of that, we're expecting that house to shoot up in value tremendously, right? So it is a gamble. That being said, we bought the house where it still makes sense at today's value, yeah. at its current value. We can actually, and we're debating on keeping it as a rental in today's market, in today's values. And even as a rental, it still makes sense. So yes, you can speculate, but you got to make sure that it makes sense if you're wrong, right? And that's something that we saw and we always talked about with Airbnbs. We don't invest in Airbnbs, uh, not because you know we hate it or anything. It's just nothing of that quality of that type of strategy has made sense to us that's come across our, our table yet, right? That being said, we talked about Airbnb plenty of times before even the pandemic happened where people were buying Airbnbs, they're buying houses purely for an Airbnb purpose where if it did not generate that kind of revenue, it did not make sense, right? It wouldn't make sense as a traditional rental. And if you were to try to sell it, put it back on the market, you were going to be negative because you overpaid for the house and you didn't, and you had a lot of repairs that you had to do and yeah. you didn't factor those in correctly. So, I mean, you didn't buy correctly. And your only way out is saying, well, this is going to be an Airbnb. And if it's not. Well, I mean, that happened a know. lot down in um, Big Nudity, Denver Heights kind of area where people are like, well, I'm buying it for this Airbnb thing. And then like Airbnb really wasn't what they thought it was going to be. They overpaid. The rehab got shoddy. They couldn't sell it. So they had to turn it into a rental property because they just like, well, I can't get rid of it and I don't have the money to cover the loss. So I had to rent it. And it's like, and then it just turns into a two, three, four. And they were year, negative cash flow. Yeah. Two, three, four year just nightmare of a property. Yeah. That is just like, dude, like that hey, sucks. And like, yeah, at well, that point, they were negative equity, negative cash flow. It's like, that's a gamble. Yep. And, and to me, that's not even investing at that point. Like there's a, a very big difference between an investor and a gambler. And we see right now probably 70 to 80% of the people in the market are gamblers. They're, they're the same people that are chasing Bitcoin, the same people that are chasing, you know, Tesla stocks, all this other shit that they're just... Dogecoin, 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 yeah, Dogecoin. Coin. It's just gamblers. Yeah. And those are the people that are going to get hurt if wholesaling gets banned because they're not building the business. So they're not real investors, you know, and a real investor, I, even though we are huge proponents and we always say you should start wholesaling. Why? Because the level of deals that you go through is so much knowledge that you can gain in such a short period of time. Yep. Because you, you talk to so many different sellers in many, many different situations of finances and problems and everything so you get to learn a huge area of uh variables that can happen when you're dealing with a homeowner and then because of that now you're having to deal with a, another variety of buyers that can take down different types of deals so now you're understanding different types of strategies then you further understand based on these buyers where they're looking to invest and why so now you understand your market much better and where does it make sense for rentals and why? Where does it make sense for flips and why? 
right? So you, all of these strategies, all of these things, and then the biggest one, the biggest uh, tactic and strategy and ability a wholesaler needs is to be able to generate leads, right? So you learn how to generate leads. You got to be really good at that or else you fail as a wholesaler because if you don't have leads, you can't wholesale anything. That helps you because when we get to a market like we are in now, where a lot of flippers and buy and hold investors that solely got into flipping and buy and hold, they cannot generate their own leads right now. And they're hurting. They're hurting because they're getting pissed that they're not getting anything decent from wholesalers. They're getting pissed they can't find anything off the MLS. It's like, because you never learned how to market. Yep. And us, we started as wholesalers. And what did we do? As soon as the market shift, we opened up our marketing again. Yep. We started generating our own leads. We started doing, because we've done it. We understand what it takes. You understand? So it's, it's a huge benefit to be a wholesaler, but it's a stepping stone to becoming a real investor. So what are the solutions when and if wholesaling does get banned? So we already kind of alluded to that, which is become an actual investor. Shocking. Yeah. What does that mean? Is take the time to learn the strategies. Take the time to learn the market. Don't be transactional. Don't just look for a seller that's, you know, that you contract low and a buyer that you sell high and you move on to the next. Try to learn when you contracted low, did that actually make sense at that price? Just because there was a buyer in place, it doesn't mean that you got it at the right price. You should reach out to actual sophisticated investors and say, hey, does this make sense? No, I wouldn't buy it. Okay, why not? The reason for this is because when you become the real investor, you know what math to run. But if you're wholesaling crap just because there's a, a dumb or novice buyer that's willing to pay for it, when you become a real investor, you're going to think that those are deals because somebody else bought it. But it's like, no, they didn't know what they were doing. You want to learn from the people that do know what they're doing, right? And, and that's something that you and I always, every time that wholesalers want to partner with us, and they bring us deals and they bring us leads. That's what we spend most of our time doing. Like we could, yeah, just analyze the lead and say yes or no, but we take them through it. And we tell them like, hey, pay attention to this. Look at this. This is why we don't want it. This is why we wouldn't buy it. Or this is at the price that would make sense because of all these risks, variables, and things. Because we want them to learn to become actual. Right? I mean, that's one of the biggest keys is you have to do that. The next thing is... You got to grow your network and you do this by wholesaling the right way, by investing the right way. You got to build the right buyers list. I did a whole uh, series on building your buyers list and everything. You got to do that first. Get to know who the players are. Get to know what the strategies are. Get to know why they're the strategies. Just because you have a buyer that does buy and hold, you know, and they need 20% equity and $300 cash flow, that doesn't mean that's the only way to do buy and hold. We've had buy and hold buyers at a huge difference of, you know, equity and cash flow because every buy and hold investor has a different strategy to go after. And by you knowing these strategies, you get to better decide what type of investor you want to be. You know, do you want to be this kind of investor, that kind of investor? The model that we're implementing is more of a hybrid. You know, we, we have our, what we call balanced portfolio of equity and cash flow. And then we're, we will build 
uh, an, a more aggressive portfolio on appreciation only, less, uh, less cash flow. And we'll build one on less chances of appreciation, but much higher cash flow. Right. So then you start kind of, at that point, you start playing with your portfolio, but that depends on your own unique investment strategy. And that happens when you have the right network, the right investors that you're wholesaling to. Don't wholesale just to somebody that's going to pay the most. Wholesale to the one that's going to teach you the most about that deal, you know, and about those numbers, about that strategy. Somebody that's going to let you maybe tag along on the rehab, ask them questions on how the project is going. You know, so you become more knowledgeable and you understand and you get to know who to, who to reach out to when you need contractors, who to reach out to when you need a lender. You know, that's how you build relationships. That's how you get lenders. We fund all of our deals with private money. We've never used hard money for anything. Even our rentals are funded through private money. And that's, again, because of our network, right? We build the relationships. We build the connections. This is building your network, but keeping a clean name. Yeah. Well, like doing yeah. business the right way. Like that's why we have that reputation. We have that connection. We have that success. Right. It's like because we are honest, we're true and we're clean the way we do business. Because like if there's an issue, we address it head on. If there's a problem, I address say, hey, we have a problem, but I've already got a solution. Yep. I don't bring just a problem. Like, okay, what's the solution? Like, well, I don't know yet. So, well, then why are you bringing it to me yet? Like try to figure it out. Think a little bit for yourself. Yeah. So that is, I think, just as important as building a network, but building the right network and keeping it in that network. Yeah. Because I've told like several people, like, uh, you start screwing people over. It's like that starts permeating and through the investment community. Because like, yes, there's a lot of people in real estate, but there's not that many either. Once you start moving up, people that have been in it for four or five years, there's a ton of people that have been in it for a year or less. Once mm -hmm. you start getting two plus, like that number starts going so much smaller so quickly. Yeah. Because um, there's somebody I reach out to, like, I mean, we just did business with them um, the end of last year. And I reached out to him. I mean, we did something from the, with them in August, September, October of last year. And I reached out to him in February. He goes, oh, I, I'm no longer in real estate. Or I'm in real estate, but I'm selling new homes. Now, it's like they just left investment side completely. Yeah. I was like, well, yeah, you developed that relationship of just like always going to whoever's going to pay the most same like those people are going to drop out they're not going to be here long term like you're developing the wrong relationships so when the market turns or things you need it's like you've already burned your reputation which burns your network because network is so shallow i guess you could call it of like people with experience like how long they how long has your network of people been doing stuff oh within the last year or two it's like you don't have anybody that's been doing it for two three four five plus years like and those are the people that you really want in your network is investors well, that have been doing it for a long time even ourselves i mean we we hold a mastermind with a good friend of ours that he's been in real estate for what 20 years or so old he's pretty old um <laughs> but even other people that we've networked with that they've been in it for 20 30 years 40 years like those are the people we rub elbows with right because it's like those are the people we need to know because they've been through cycles they have so many resources available to them and because we've provided them so much value throughout the years and we're always there whenever they need something and everything that whenever we call on them they're always there for us you know and that leads to the next point where this is not a solo game and this is how you're going to protect yourself so many wholesalers get into this and they want to do it on their own you know because they want a hundred percent of the profit they don't want to split that with anybody and okay i understand but then what? You're not going to do this by yourself. Even ourselves right now, 
you know, we have all the projects, the rentals, the builds, everything, the marketing, everything we're doing. We're bringing on more people. We need more people. And we're more, we've always partnered with people. Every step of the way, we were always partnering with people because we wanted to build our network. We wanted to build our knowledge, our connection, and what we were able to do, right? And that's because we never thought about, you know, no, we got we to gotta do this by ourselves. You know what I mean? Because our ego or whatever the hell goes through your head. Like, we don't have that. What we focus on is like, is this the right thing to do? Who is the best person to do this? Who can we learn from? Who can we build a relationship with? Um, and those are the important things out of, you know, when you're growing as a wholesaler and everything to understand is that this is not a solo game. Look for people that you will be able to partner with when the market shifts, when things change that you can work with. And then the last thing I wanted to hit on as another solution is get your real estate license. So I did a whole episode on why it is that every investor, even wholesaler needs to have a real estate license. The level of added income streams that you can generate by having your license is insane. You know what I mean? And if they change the laws and everything, you're still okay. You know, you still have a way that you can still yeah, play the not, game. They're not going to ban real estate agents. No. And you might, the market might put out as far as technology changes and things like that, but uh, you're not going to be banned by the government. Exactly. Government. As far as you have your, as long as you have your license and everything, yeah, things might, the wordings might change in contracts. You might have to start doing maybe double closes, right? Where you won't be able to do an, a straight assignment. You probably will have to buy the real estate and then resell it at that moment, right? So going back to your network, your network is going to matter because you're going to need funding for that. You're going to need transactional funding if you don't have the money. So how do you get transactional funding at a low enough price where you can still sell it and make some money? So all of these things matter and all of these things can help you if you have your real estate license. So make sure you check out that video. All of those things, all those videos and everything are going to be in the description below. But will wholesaling get banned? Again, I don't care. You know what I mean? And I don't um, care. You don't care. Yeah, it's like it, they serve a purpose, but then it's also if it went away, it's like, mm, okay, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, the, it because they're still not attacking the... I think they're punishing the small individual wholesaler because of what the big wholesalers are doing. Yeah. And it's like, those yep. are the people that need to, are creating the bad reputation that are screwing people over left and right and putting bad names in there saying, and they're using the term wholesaling. It's like, they're not a wholesaler because they're buying the house and selling it to somebody else. It's like, they're just a place you can go to buy property, but they use the term wholesaling and it's putting a bad name on everybody because of the shady business that they do. Yep. And, and that's not the people that are going to get affected by this. Like they're going to be just fine because they're buying the properties and they're reselling it and they have Deep, deep liquid pools of financing to adapt and change. Because, uh, I mean, they people have agent, or the license. So it's like, well, now you have to have a license to do this. Well, you already do. So I, I, that's the part that sucks is like, those are the people that I wish they would go after, but they're not. They're going to write a law and they're going to hurt small individual people just trying to make a buck. But the big people are, that cause this problem are still going to get away with it. Yeah, for sure. So let me know. Put it in the comments below. Let us know what, what are your hesitations with wholesaling or your fears if they do end up banning wholesaling. What do you think about the points that we laid out? Uh, comment below. Let us know. Um, again, you should not be afraid if you are actually becoming a real real estate investor. This does not matter. You know, and 
to that point, I mean, this is going to be great for real estate investors because it's going to get rid of a lot of shitty wholesalers that are bogging down the market, right? So, you know, for, for real investors, this is not a problem. For those of you that are more drive-by-night, you know, transactional people, yes, this, this will be terrible for you. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's just going to get out people that are in it for just Yep. Or it's like, if you're in it for just the money, you don't actually love real estate and love the business about it, it'll make it harder for people, which that I'm perfectly okay with. It's like, mm, okay, these less people and, and quote unquote investors trying to distort the market and giving false hopes to people. So uh, I think that aspect of it is good. So, oh. yep. Comment oh. below. Let us know and uh, see what you guys think. Hit a like if you like that dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> the, we got, dialogue. We got eight. We got eight. Eight likes only and 19 people watching. Come on, give me a like. We can get to 12. Hit that thumbs up. Um, but if you if you do want more tips and stuff like that, like I said, uh, text actually text info to 210-794-9898 because uh, on that you'll get all the different groups that you can kind of join for alerts and stuff like that uh, through the text community that we have. So that would be good for you. Moving on, we have building a home in the U.S. has never been more expensive. So this article, like I said, was a very, very interesting article. It had some really cool diagrams and stuff like that. So definitely go check it out. Uh, but for lumber, from lumber to paint to concrete, the cost of almost every single item that goes into building a house in the U.S. is soaring. In some cases, the, prices increase, the price increases have topped 100% since the pandemic began. There are any number of factors to play from rock bottom mortgage rates to city dwellers rushed to the suburbs to shortages of material. But the simplest explanation is that there's just too much demand for builders and their supply to handle. All of this makes housing an extreme manifestation of the inflationary pressure pre-colating, percolating, I remember hearing that word once <laughs> percolating <laughs> through the booming U.S. economy. So they had two, uh, a few charts there. And one of them was copper. In March of last year, it was at five grand. Now it's at 10 grand. Copper, big part of uh, electrical. Uh, if you're in the north and everything, radiators, pl uh, plumbing, a lot of things. We use copper for a lot of things. Uh, so that affects a, a lot. Then lumber. I mean, March of last year, $400. This year, it went up to $1,700, and now it's trading at about $1,400. So, yeah, a little, a little bit of an increase on that one. Uh, in Boise, Idaho, one of the hottest housing markets in the country, Steve Martinez opened up the financial books of his construction company uh, to Bloomberg News to reveal the magnitude of the cost surge. He's had to raise prices on some of the houses the company makes, which include the Baybrook single-family floor plan that's 3,000 square feet, uh, to offset higher costs, leading to many tough conversations with clients. So there's a whole diagram that uh, it's actually pretty cool, too, as you scroll. If the page doesn't scroll. It's just like the diagram. Yeah, I don't know. It was just, um, I was like, ah, oh, good uh, Good in, uh, design on the website. But home price, this is without the land, has gone, and this is from a year ago, has gone from $505,000 to $746,000. Uh, 
So that's what it costs the contractor to build the house, all right, without the land. So that's a 47% uh, increase. And foundation, last year, 17 grand. This year, 32 grand. So 88% increase. Lumber, 32 grand last year. This year, 105 is what it cost them to build that house. So 228% increase and or 6% of the price. Uh, it, so 32 grand was 6% of the price, what it would cost them last year. And now at 105 grand, that's 14% of the price. So that already, you go looking at that and how that is going to be affecting their profit margins. So trusses went from 14 grand to 30 grand, so 114%. Sheerock went up 12%. Plumbing, HVAC, electrical went up 31%. Paint went up 37%. Trim and cabinets, stuff like that went up 32%. Appliances, 25%. And then the final home price went from 670 to 946. So the, the spread of cost to sell has gone up from 32% to, has gone down from 32% to 27%. So they're making less profit for each house they're building. The problem is like a 41% increase over year on the final home price. If you are a builder and somebody hired you to build a home and it's taking you Oh, a year to build it because it's a massive home, custom home. To so go back to them and tell them like. Well, I know that's right. I'm <laughs> on the broker undergrounds you see for San Antonio that there's a lot of realtors that are really pissed about buyers or builders that just like we got or they cancel our contract. Yeah. And it's like, can they do this? What legally can we do? And it's just like, there's nothing you can do. It's built on the contract for this specific reason. I was like, literally, you contract a, a piece of dirt to build and it's going to take them eight months to build that house it's like with cost is rising so fast it's like i'm sorry you can't lock in that price that long and it's a super volatile market especially when you look at lumber prices i was talking with um a contractor that used to be able to go to like mg big supplier for builders here and they used to lock prices for two three months for a project to bid things out but it, it because costs were rising so fast it's like we'll lock you price for one week all they were giving you unlocking prices because they were escalating so fast yeah. that it's like we'll give you a week lock, but that's it on pricing. Well, because it's so it it's a it huge hard. risk for them. I it mean, makes it very hard to yeah. judge the cost of building a house, especially if you're contracting it pre-building the house. Oh. As like that's very difficult versus like if you're mid-build, you're through the lumber aspect of it, and it's mainly like once you get just looking at these numbers, once you get through the framing aspect of it, yes, there's some increased costs in there, but they're not as bad. But you just look at the lumber up 228% and the trusses 114. It's really the wood that's gone up the most amount out of anything else. And like that's a big cost of your framing. Right. I mean, foundation especially. Foundation and lumber and sheeting drying your house in, that's where a lot of the costs are. Paint, okay, it goes up 27% or whatever. What was paint? 37%. But it's really, okay, you're only using... 30 40 50 gallons of paint so it's not that big a cost up 37 percent, but you're going from three grand to what would that be like four grand well that, that's so like that's eh. one of the actual math that i wanted to run too but i just i was reading this article and doing the even doing all these percentages and everything last night i just 
afterwards I thought about it. I was like, ah, I don't feel like it. But you should go back and, and do this, especially if you're thinking about doing construction, doing new builds, or you're thinking about, you know, renovating a house. Take the those numbers that they're going to show you there and factor that in in relation to the house itself, to the overall cost. So you can understand like how much of the overall cost is this of the house? Is it 6% of the overall cost? Is it 20% of the overall cost? Because then it's going to matter, you know, does 30%, 32% raise in trim and cabinets matter? Well, if it's, you know, 15% of the house value uh, of the cost of the home home, then yeah, it's going to affect you. You know, it's going to be extra money that you got to put up. So maybe go back in there and start running those numbers and doing that data just for you to have a better understanding. And of course, uh, all of this is, uh, it matters what market you're in, right? So Boise, Idaho is different than San Antonio, Texas, labor market, everything is very different. So all of those things are going to matter as well. You got to take that into account. But the article continues. With raw material prices continuing to surge around the world, the pressure on builders to increase costs is likely to grow. And he said, this could be industry killing if things continue going the way they're going. Uh, said Martinez, who has, had to track, who has had to track on price increases during construction of anywhere from $40,000 to $100,000, primarily due to rising lumber costs. We're putting projects off. We've got clients that are hitting their price ceiling. So, I mean, I just don't know what you do in that situation. If you are the client, if you are the builder that you took on a project and now all of a sudden it's like, uh, I, you know, prices went up. I need to increase it. They're telling you, well, I don't have that. I don't have that anymore. <laughs> like this was well, maxed that, out my budget. Oh yeah. And that's what really sucks. And <laughs> what's even worse is like, there's somebody waiting in line ready to take your place on a house that can't afford it. And so it's like, well, I lost my house and now I can't afford a new one. And somebody jumped in right behind me and picked up the house that I was wanting to buy. And like, and it really sucks. And I do feel for the people, but it's also one of the things that as a builder, it's like, I get it. And everyone, I hate that. It's like, oh, the developers are making so much money. It's like, no, actually this article shows they're making less money. It's like Christ was shooting up. And that's what I, my, kind of inclination was like what's driving these cost increases like who's making this extra money yeah. but i think it's it's really just all spread out across the entire supply chain as like where i think we talked about like how many people do you think touch a tree from owner owning the land planting the tree growing the tree harvesting this tree to it being a truss on a house i bet i wouldn't be surprised if numbers like 50 or more pe- people yeah, or yeah. companies touch that thing all the way along that like everyone's price prices are increasing all across the board, wildly swinging all over the place. And I, I think that I think I was thinking about this the other day. It's like this happened in 2008 when all of a sudden prices just like shot all over the place. It's like, I don't think it did because it was a much slower recovery and it was, it, things started going wrong and then it took it two years for things to really hit bottom before they really started recovering going up where this 2020, it went from March falling through the floor to June, July going back up. So of course, like when you have that big a shock and that big a rise, that kind of V-shaped recovery they're talking, they talked about, like, yeah, it's going to throw things all over the place. 
And then especially when you inject so much cash into the market with it too, the liquidity, it's like, it's just trying to find assets. It's trying to find purchases. It's trying to find all over the place. So it's going to take a very long period of time to where I think these prices are going to come down once like price stability kind of figures things out and everyone kind of cash gets absorbed. It goes places, it gets burned, whatever happens and prices will stable off and come down, but they're never going to go back down to $300 where they were kind of 2018, 19 levels. Because I think there was too much cash that was injected, and then when the prices find it, it's never going to drop oh, as low as it was. And then, I mean, you're also assuming that what they stopped pumping in money into the economy for that to happen. Because that's my thing when people say, you know, when is this going to stop? It's like I don't know. I mean, they're already talking about right now that you know Biden is pushing for a 1.7 trillion dollar uh, infrastructure plan, and then the the Republicans are pushing back that they want it lower, and even after this one, they're already planning another one right after that one, even though this one's not gone through yet, right? So my thing is like, what, whether, and it's not arguing whether that makes sense or not. It's just that money goes into the market. It goes into things, right? Yeah. It needs to be distributed. It needs to be deployed well, throughout I the market. Well, I think so. it's one of those that uh, stop pumping large amounts very quickly. Where like the infrastructure plan, like it's a $1.9 trillion plan, but it's spread out over several years. It's not like this thing where like, hey, we're going to take $500 billion and just literally give it to people. Or that was a big wave of cash that hit very quickly in a lockdown market. Or, and people were saving more money because they couldn't go out and spend it. And then they added more to it to where you're in a lot of in consumers. Yeah. Got a lot of money. Or I think that's the kind of cash I'm talking about. And I agree with you, like them pumping money into it, that it's going to go somewhere. But I think it's more, I don't want to use targeted, but it, it's kind of got a set chain of sub, like a chat of how it gets into the market it's like we're going to build new well, roads we're going to build new towers yeah, well it takes a it long should. time for uh, that to go yeah. i'm it's like once they stop like taking like hey we're going to take 500 700 i don't know how much billion how many billions it was to give those 1400 checks or whatever it was like but dumping that massive amount into people's hands so, so if you're doing the research on this that's the research you should be doing is looking at that infrastructure plan or whatever plan comes out next or whatever, you know, whenever they deploy something and seeing, okay, well, out of this whole thing, how much is being dumped into the market instantly? How much is being given in forms of stimulus, local governments to local business? How much is being deployed yeah. like instantly? Because well, that's going to matter as well, far as I guess how much money. This way. It's like, what is actually going to produce real value towards goods and services? Not here's $1,400 for doing nothing. I think that's the stuff that needs to stop is like, you're not getting any, like, cause the infrastructure plans, like, okay, they're building infrastructure. They're building people, roads. They're people building, don't feel safe. <laughs> they're building a uh, 5g networks. They're building things that should have some form of real value to the economy by providing some sort of service or product or something like that. But the lump sum cash dumps to get nothing back ever in any kind of return. I was like, that's what I think is really throwing things all over the place. It's like, you get these forgivable loans, you get these uh, these checks, like EPP programs, EIDLs, like all of that stuff. Like once that kind of slows down and tapers off and that sugar high kind of settles down, but uh, I don't think it'll ever drop to where it was before. Yeah. Uh, but I think certain areas, like we'd already covered an article on this of where lumber futures are starting to stable off and starting to show that like, Hey, come June, July, August, it looks like some of the stuff's going to start tapering off uh, some. And then when you add that buyers are now being priced out of the market. So now you don't mm -hmm. have that stuck on the end economy side where it's like, 
builders are trying to build as fast as they can because there's so much demand. Well, once that demand starts to taper off, they don't need to build as much, and that's going to start alleviating pressures and allow prices to start to adjust. Uh, that's going to take some time. Yeah, I agree. It is, and that's like it's not going to go back down. I mean, under eight hundred dollars in the next like month, but it could over the course of twelve to twenty-four. So, in some local news, <laughs> speaking of uh, builder demand and everything, we have uh, Lennar Homes. Uh, they're they're planning to build twelve hundred homes on the southwest side, and they've already broken ground. So, you have Lennar uh, is planning nearly a hundred and thirty-acre single-family residential development at Somerset Road with 630 houses as well as a 122-acre development with 657 homes on land west of I-35 and Fisher Road. So 1,200 homes. The builder expects uh, homes at both of the communities to range from 175 to $266,000. $266,000. Yeah, thousand dollars <laughs> taking skyrocketing construction costs into consideration. So, one, I'm I'm just like looking at those costs, and I'm like, what the hell is this? A, a shed with a bathroom at that point? <laughs> um, but it'll be interesting to see what they put up. Uh, they said we're really focused on delivering a value, well-built home that we can be proud of for the local residents that are looking for new housing as families grow and want to stay in the community. John Lohr, Lennar's vice president of land acquisition. We've really found that to be very attractive feature for our other communities around San Antonio. So apparently it's a very attractive feature to, build, to do a well-built home. Um, huh. Very interesting. Oh. <laughs> the company has already begun construction of the first phase of the Somerset community, which is on the portion of the portion south of I-35, uh, with horizontal development taking about one year, followed by home construction. Uh, Laura said Lennar expected to sell about fifty to sixty homes per year. Yep. In April, Lennar Homes of Texas, uh, of Texas Land and Construction submitted applications for the creation of petition-initiated tax increment reinvestment zones oh, for both of the properties, which would create funds that would collect a portion of city taxes in the de designated areas to invest back into economic development. The committee approved bringing both TIRZ, so whatever that whole thing. Tax incentive reinvestment. Yep. Re request to the uh, city council, which is set to happen June 10th. So if you guys don't want your tax dollars going into their pockets, maybe show up. Uh, the total development cost of the project along Somerset is expected at just more than $77 million with the Fisher Road project slated to cost $94 million. Lennar is requesting $21 million in public infrastructure reimbursement for Somerset, Somerset and $22 million for Fisher. The, uh, the area is continuing to be a hub for job growth, and that's really one of the reasons why there's a need for more housing. We found in our existing communities tremendous demands from those types of employees, as well as just you, 
just you find all kinds of folks that are working throughout the community. That might be at an HUB or other areas that are looking for quality, affordable housing. Also coming to the corner of I-35 and Fisher Road is a 200,000 square foot facility, which Amazon announced as one of its next local delivery stations. The e-commerce giant said these locations will bring hundreds of full-time jobs to the region paying $15 per hour. So, one thing that I took out of the uh, article is how can they sell homes that cheap? Well, when the, you're asking the government to give you, what's that, like third of your cost? Reimburse a third of your cost through taxes? It's like, okay, you know, now you're, you're asking the city to give you $21 million for one and $22 million for the other project? Like, oh, yeah, that's infrastructure reimbursement. Yeah. So, oh, I mean, that's where it's like building the roads, building the um, sewers, uh, doing all of that stuff, which the city generates revenue off of eventually. No, I understand. And, so, but, and I'm not, I'm not, honestly, like, I, I'm, that was a joke before about showing up and, like, protesting it. it. What I mean is, like, as builders and things like that, when you look at these large developers, why they're able to do it is because they know shit like this. They are able to do stuff like this where the, you can get reimbursed. If the project is costing you $77 million and you're getting 21, almost $22 million back from uh, reimbursements, like, and hey. So what, what are they selling? Would you say the houses were? Range from 175 to 266 Yeah. Well, and that's where I said, like, if you look at how do you get affordable housing, is like the government has to reimburse, so they have to tax, tax, collect taxes from everybody to give back to a builder to allow him to lower his costs. And, that, and that's something that's like some people agree, some people disagree with it. Um, and it's one of those like, what well, I mean, housing overall does show that it's good. It does spur economic development. It does do a lot of things for areas. And if you can get to cheaper housing, but that's also one of the things like you get this tax incentives and you just don't have the ability to do whatever you want for a house. They come with stipulations. They're like, all right, so many of your houses have to meet certain criteria as far as uh, price point for affordable housing. It's like so many have to be under 200. So many have to be under this if we're going to give you this. So it, it does it does do a good thing for the local community. You know I mean, so I, I do agree with it. Yeah. But where I was reading this is like, man, and we always knew the South side had cheaper real estate, the cheaper prices. There wasn't much development down there. So yep. that's one reason why you couldn't build a development like this on the North side of the city. Like one, there's no land that size. And, even if, and if you were going to do it, you're paying such a massive amount that you're building huge custom homes that are in the tune of eight, $9 million. Uh, eight, nine, I, I was about to say, I'm like, damn. I wouldn't have gone that high. Oh, but you're building these huge developments. Well, where I think this is an opportunity for investors is that you're looking at all this money that's being dumped in that area, then the 200,000 square foot facility by Amazon, all those things. If you have the capital, the Southwest side at this moment, I'm pretty sure you're going to get lots at much more favorable prices than you will in any other area of San Antonio, I would be picking up lots and just kind of sitting on them. You know what I mean? Lots are not that expensive to maintain, right? It's a, it's a lot. So I would just pick up a lot and kind of hold on to it. Let them start dumping some of that inventory oh. into the market because now they're going to be 
boosting up the home prices in those areas for new build, for new construction. Oh, for sure. That's when I was reading that article. I was like, man, let me start looking a little further into the south side. Then your thoughts on it were like, man, maybe start looking at stuff on the south side. I'm like, all right. That's because, yeah. I mean, you see these kind of opportunities. I mean, 200,000 square feet for Amazon's not very much. I mean, like. Well, it's a distribution facility. Yeah. 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 And it's, I'm sure it's for like this area of, you know, I'm sure they got the data saying that's enough. Yeah. So it's just kind of, you see things like that happening. So like, yeah, picking up things on the South side, cause you can find rental properties over there. Yeah. You can find housing. That's still like, I mean, they're much, much, much older. You have to be much, there's a level of risk, a degree that you need to understand how you mitigate that, yep. but you can find houses for 120, 130, 140 renting for 13, 14, 1500s uh, a month. So it's like, you, you got to understand just what those houses are. You're going to find older electrical you're going to find older plumbing you're going to find houses that don't have hvac that have window units like you're just going to have that stock where it's like you need to make sure you're not buying like you're buying a 1980s build like you're buying something from the 50s and 60s understand the construction style and what's been done to do a little more due diligence like hey uh before i buy this thing i'm going to pay the 400 bucks for my plumber to go out and run a camera down it to see what that sewer line looks like because yeah. That's something that can get very expensive very quickly so let, let me ask you based on, on something like this this kind of information would you pick up a rental in that area? Why? They're putting up a bunch of new houses. Because of what they're building an Amazon plant near there. $15 an hour employee cannot afford a $175,000 house. Right. So it's like, and what comes along with that? It's like when you see those kind of big, Amazon's what, Fortune 3? I don't know, Fortune 2. I think they're one of the largest. Oh, they're uh, not one? I don't know. It's either them or Apple, one of the yeah. two, or Microsoft. They usually those three go back and forth. Uh, but I don't, I, I would pick something up in there. Yeah. And But it's also like, I'll almost pick a rental up almost at the right price, depending on oh, where things are. But it's one of those, like, I would, but it, would I go there versus, say, near east side or near west side of downtown? For sure. Oh, yeah. I was like, it's just the, the spread of the deal, the so potential. What, but what about appreciation, though, at that point? Because one thing we've always talked about is when you have so much vacant land and they're doing new construction, your appreciation doesn't but It's keep the price up. point. So they're talking to hitting right. 175 to 266. I would not be buying something that has an ARV of 185. I would be buying something that has a current value of like 120, 30. Because now they're not building houses at that to where the people that can't afford the $175,000 house, but they can afford a $150,000 house. Because I, I saw this firsthand to where that uh, rental property I picked up from my mom in 2015, land galore, buildings yeah. everywhere. But the thing was that it was only worth like 110, 115. Well, now that area is being built with houses at like 180, 190, 200. And that's taken that value of that little house up to 150, 160, 170 in a, just in a couple because of years. Because it's still affordable. It's still affordable right. because like, they're not building houses that cheap anymore and with that kind of land. Yeah. And so it's like, you got to look at all of those factors. So, um, so, so for those of you listening, the point of this conversation is for you to understand, like when you read something like this, it's not like, oh yeah, well, big builders can do this big build. You know, these people can do it. It's understanding what does that do for the area? And as a smaller investor, how can I jump into that? How can I get a piece of that as well? Right. And these are ideas. I mean, by all means, like we said, we're not financial advisors. We're not accountants, attorneys, doctors, veterinarians. So do your due diligence. But that's what we look at. We look at things like this and then we start saying, OK, we see these opportunities coming. You know, this is something to keep an eye on. This is something to maybe put some chips on the table if you can. So make sure you pay attention when you see articles like this, when you see things like this. Those are the tips. Those are the uh, techniques that keep you ahead of pretty much. The masses. 
So I wanted to jump over to the, the issue that we might see with employment is you have McDonald's. Well, we talked about McDonald's a lot. They've had a, a lot of places where people have been doing strikes, asking for $15 minimum and all that. So McDonald's is now testing automated drive through at 10 Chicago restaurants. So at 10, uh, uh, 10 Chicago restaurant workers are, aren't taking down customer drive through orders or McNuggets and French fries. A computer is a, a computer is CEO Chris uh, said on Wednesday. So he said restaurant using the voice ordering technology are seeing about 85% order accuracy. Only about a fifth of orders need to be taken by a human at those locations, uh, at those locations. And this is something that I find funny when they say like 85%. We know of a local Dunkin' Donuts here that they're like 50% accuracy and that's 100% humans. <laughs> <laughs> so 85% accuracy, that's pretty damn good. Um, over the last decade, restaurants have been leaning more into technology to improve the customer experience and help save on labor. In, in 2019, under the former CEO, McDonald's went on a spending spree, snapping up restaurant tech. One of those acquisitions was Apprenti, which uh, uses artificial intelligence software to take drive through orders. Financial terms for the deal were not disclosed. So he, uh, the CEO said that technology will likely take more than one or two years to implement. Now, there's a big leap from going to 10 restaurants in Chicago to 14,000 restaurants across the U.S. with an infinite number of promo permutations, menu permutations, uh, dialect, weather, and on and on and on, he said. McDonald's uh, has also been looking into automating more of the kitchen, such as its fryers and grills. Uh, he added, however, that the technology likely won't roll out within the next five years, even though it's possible now. The level of investment that would be required, the cost of investment, we're nowhere near to what the break-even would need to be from uh, the labor cost standpoint to make a good business decision for franchisees to do. And because restaurant technology is moving so fast, McDonald's won't always be able to drive innovation itself or keep it up. The company's current strategy is to wait until there are opportunities that specifically work for it. And he said, if we do acquisitions, it will be a short period of time, bring it in-house, jumpstart it, turbo it, and then spin it back out to find a partner that will work and scale it for us. That last part I really liked because uh, it shows the level of uh, uh, of intelligence that the CEO has where he's saying, you know, we don't need to be the ones that invent the wheel. We just need to be the ones that take a wheel that's already working and just blow it up, you yeah. know, and partner with the right people. So very smart, very good insight. And what we talked about before, you know, people keep pushing for higher wages and stuff like that, especially on these entry-level jobs it's like you will get automated you understand because it gets to a point where it's like in order to keep prices low even though everybody's like oh yeah you should raise minimum wage okay go ahead and raise it but then when they go and buy their burgers and burgers cost more they're gonna be pissed because everybody likes to talk but they don't like to put up 
You know what I mean? Oh. So I, I think when you start seeing this level of automation, it's doing it because what's going to end up happening, even though everybody's so appalled by this, as long as they keep prices low and everything keeps working, people aren't really going to bitch about it all that much. You know what I mean? But once prices start going up and everything's like, well, you well, wanted it. Well, that's the it. thing. It's, it's like when everyone's, oh, hoorah, that uh, they're passing this $1.9 trillion stimulus plan. They're giving checks to all the people. And especially, like, it blows my mind when, like, I mean, not to try to get too political, but like the left, like, well, we're giving money to the people. We're giving money to the people. We're doing all these things. We're pushing for all these higher wages. Like, that's, you not understand economics. Like, when you give money like that, you hurt the people you're trying to help over the long term short wind yes they're gonna do a little bit better off but now they're more dependent on that government money then you're pushing for these higher wages they're gonna get higher wages the cost goes right back down to the people that are working at these places yeah. or the people that eat at these places so it's like it's a wash and it's like you're not like oh we're gonna tax the corporations no you're not yes the tax the amount of money that corporations are paying might go up to the government but it gets passed straight on like those big corporations margins are pretty damn set that you're raising those costs on because like small businesses aren't corporations they're not the ones paying these are you're talking big multinational not multinational but multi-city multi-location big companies that aren't don't have an individual owner. It's a lot of owners because you kind of get double tax when you're in the corporations, like their margins are set. Like the reason they're that big is because their margins are, are pretty stable. And when you raise the bar across the entire industry or entire corporate structure of the United States, they're all just going to raise the prices that exact amount. And or they're not going to get higher wages. They're not going to give employment. They're not going to hire people. It's like, you're going to cause more problems on the people you're trying to help yeah. or save. And it's like, or at the very best, it's going to be right back to where we are anyway, right? Where it's going to go up, things go up, and we're just back to where we started anyways. You know, so that would be the best solution. And then another thing that I was reading really, well, I like technology. I mean, just cool stuff. But self-driving truck completes a 950-mile trip 10 hours faster than a human driver. So Wait a minute. So, hours? Yeah, so it was pretty much, uh, where was it? How? It, it's, like 950 miles, is, it, it's far, but it's, it's not. It's a self-driving truck. <laughs> but like, why? Uh, like, well, like what was it? it? I think it said it was like something that the trip was supposed to take 24 hours, and it only took uh, 14. So the company in charge of, the, uh, of this was Too Simple, T-U Simple, a transportation company focusing on driverless tech for trucks, 80% of the journey, or 950 miles, was driven by the autonomous system, with a human at the wheel for the other 20% of the cross-country trip, and at the ready to take over uh, the wheel if anything faulted with the technology. Bearing in mind that the heavy-duty trucks move slower than cars, have specific parameters around maximum speeds, and truckers have to take their potty breaks, um, because they are only allowed to drive for 11 hours out of every 14 hours on the road. The trip took roughly 10 hours less than with a human driver at the wheel. Oh, well, that's just not fair. Hold on. Time is, not, <laughs> time is on the essence. Uh, time is of the essence when delivering fresh goods, um, like two simples watermelon laden truck. 
By arriving a day earlier, the watermelons go on the supermarket shelf sooner after being picked, creating less wastage and improving the customer experience, which would likely make them want to buy more watermelons in the future. So Too Simple argues that the revenue would increase for farmers and merchants. The company already has 20 or so clients that rely on, the, on their semi-autonomous trucks so they're well set in line for future fully autonomous customers. The company is developing commercial ready level four fully autonomous driving solutions for heavy duty trucks. Its system uses AI to help trucks see, see 3,280 feet away to operate nearly continuously and to consume 10% less fuel than manually driven trucks as it presses, uh, as the press release stated. We believe the food industry is one of the many that will greatly benefit from the use of Two Simple's autonomous trucking technology, uh, said the chief administrative officer. So I think this is insane. Like it's, it's crazy. You know, they save 10 hours. They need a person there to obviously like, you know, it, the autonomous trucks they're going to be doing amazing i think in highways stuff like that but once you start getting into back roads and everything you'll you'll have more of an issue but i remember even uh andrew yang when he was running for president he addressed this point he says like he's like this is here this technology is here and, and he's like yeah. and the driver doesn't even need to actually be behind the wheel there, there could be one driver sitting in an office with multiple screens around him and whenever he needs to he can take over the wheel and has all the same visuals that he would if he was inside the truck. And that one driver can essentially handle three or four trucks that day for those areas that they need to be uh, maneuvered manually. So this was Andrew Yang when he ran for president. He talked about that. And I mean, yeah, you're saving. My thing is like, hold on. So two simples, watermelon laden truck. So like, is two simples like, do they sell watermelons? Are they a food distributor or are they no, a technology I think that's company? That's what they were trans transporting watermelons. Okay, that's just one of their clients. Okay, that's where I was like, so this is a food manufacturer. That's what you got caught on. <laughs> Out of all this, uh, that's what you got yeah, caught up on. But it was uh, <laughs> that is one of the things that yeah. I, I thought it was. But then like, yeah, and I, I look at it, it's like, well, it's not really fair. It's like you uh, to compare it. Oh, ten hours faster. It's like, well, because you regulate the freaking truck drivers where they only can drive eleven or fourteen hours. Well, you need to. But like, if you okay. have two people, humans have to sleep. <laughs> you don't sleep. Well, you, if you have two people, I mean, now you're spending double the labor. Yeah, and then well, that's one thing. Like, I understand like this technology is coming because it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper exactly. to do, and then like cost of living and wages are going up and up and up and up. Or yeah, it, it is, and especially like even if you have one person in the truck, it's like yeah, I think it is a combination of both. Like somebody's in the truck and the truck's driving by itself because you get on these long stretch highways, it's. 800 miles before you your next exit i mean i was driving when we were driving from uh kansas to california you turn on one road and the gps it goes your next turn is in oh I miles you're like, yeah. like yeah. i'm on this road for 400 miles like nine hours like holy crap yeah when i but drove like, down from new york it was like oh your next exit in two miles one mile and it's like oh so excited you get off the exit nothing really changes it's like all right your next exit in 450 miles you're like yeah, that's where I would just love, like, autopilot, please. Yeah, And then especially exactly. on the highways. Like, I get cities and busy metropolitan areas that it would be much harder to do. But, I mean, man, you were just in a, like, on a highway, magnets, sat uh, satellites, any all kinds of things that tell where you're at on that road, I think is 
perfect. Yep. Where it's like highway. And I, I've always said this, like eventually I think there's going to be points where certain you're going to have lanes that develop that like you can't get into this lane unless you're autonomous vehicle. Right. Because I think that's the only way you have to separate the human driver from the machine driver. Because it's like, it's not usually the machine driver hitting people. It's the fact that they can't predict what a human's going to do. Yeah. And so it's like, you're going to have that. Like you get on highways, like you have an express lane that's only, and it's walled off to where it's like cars, autonomous vehicles going that because you can't, you're not going to be able to switch over an entire population in three years to autonomous vehicles. No, like, but you're not switching over an entire population. You're switching over an industry. No, you know? I yes, I know. Uh, I'm I'm saying in general too. Like they say, autonomous yeah, vehicles are yeah, the future. Yeah. Towards they like are. even on a, a highway, like for a truck driver, it's like you're not going to sit in an autonomous vehicle on I-35 going between San Antonio and Austin. Like there's way too much traffic for them to be going in and out and, and stuff like that. So I think you would have to have an autonomous lane that would say semis only. This much like you have a semis can't get in the far left lane. Uh, towards like trucks, can't, truckers know. can't get in that. You'd stuff. be surprised. The technology I've seen, I've seen a lot of the videos and everything. The technology is really freaking good. As even on stop and go traffic, like trucks still take a minute to like rev up. You know, they have like what seventeen gears, um, and even in like gear seven, they're still doing like thirty five miles an hour. So they they take a while to ramp up. So even on stop and go traffic, like they'll keep a good distance from other vehicles. I mean, and the the benefit is like even stop and go. The biggest benefit is like the truck doesn't need to ever stop, you know? So even on stop and go traffic, then once the traffic moves on, you don't need to pull over to, for a potty break, you know, like keep going. The truck keeps going, never stops. So it'll make up that time anyway. It'll make, even if it needs to go a little bit slower during that traffic time. So so now when you think about it, like, okay, autonomous vehicles, like, I don't think you can have. I think it's going to be very difficult when you have like a lot of half autonomous, half people driven vehicles. I think you're going to have problems just like they've already seen. It's like not the autonomous vehicles hitting the people hitting yeah, autonomous yeah. vehicles. Or that's what I think. Like, you think you could see developed lanes specifically for autonomous only. Yeah, just like you and have like, HOA lanes. Yeah, exactly. Where it's like this lane, that, that's where you, HOV. HOV. Um, <laughs> I was like, why is HOA? So? <laughs> <laughs> that's where you're, because then at that point, all you're going to hate it because you're going to be maxed to a speed. Like you can't speed. Like you move at sixty-five miles an hour. Like all traffic moves at the exact same speed. In an autonomous vehicle? Yeah. And like you can't get into this lane and take over the vehicle. Like the vehicle runs on autonomous. Like you can't pass. You can't do anything. You set the speed and the speed goes. It follows all the laws. Like you can't move, cut people Boo. off. You can't exactly. <laughs> uh, but that also makes things move faster because the reason yes. things move slower is exactly. because of stop and go, stop and yeah, go. Yeah, by the time somebody effect. stops and they realize that they can go again, and it takes them a delay, and their brain yeah, process so like, is extremely slow for whatever reason. Whatever reason. But um, yeah, so you have these <laughs> autonomous lanes that these trucks will drive in. You have the autonomous lanes that the vehicles will drive in with too, because the accident within that lane, it's like it's, a, and you can't get in that lane unless you have an autonomous vehicle, and it's one of those that it won't let you turn off the autopilot in there unless an emergency situation allows you or something. Yeah. I could see the development. I remember talking with one of the investors. He's like, why are we trying to develop such old technologies, spending all this money trying to get a train from San Antonio to Austin? It's like, how about you build autonomous vehicle lanes and things that move mass amounts of people that way to get traffic off these 35s. We're like, how do we expand 35? How do we make it bigger? It's like, that's such an old technology. It's also what we always talk about, the inefficiencies of, city of politics and like city policies and everything is that they're always behind the curve like every time they start expanding a highway like 
you should have done that two years ago. And now by the time you're done expanding this highway, you got to go back and start expanding it again because you're expanding it for what we yeah. had a year ago. Yeah. And that's why I think <laughs> so, it'd be fantastic. It's like, how about you? And I agree. Like, well, let's develop technology for the future. It's like figure out a train system that can be elevated and runs along 35, yeah. like in the center of it. I mean, Bullet yep. train. Sure. I don't need to be a bullet from here to Austin. Yeah. 10 minutes. <laughs> by the time it speed, hits speed, it's got to start slowing down again. But uh, I think yeah. that, or like, or an elevated HOV lane, or an HOV, um, autonomous lane. Yeah. That like, you have a car, you push a button, it gets on and it takes you there. And it's like, but you, the fact that you would like it is like, you're not in control of the car, but you also don't have to be in control of the car. Yeah, you can so work. You, you can, can do, do whatever else yeah. you want in that, that ride. Well, in that's usually that. my issue with driving places is how ineffective or inefficient you are because you have to be driving. You know, you have to be paying attention to the road and everything. So it's like, and yes, people, you actually have to be paying attention to the road, not doing your makeup, brushing your teeth, checking Facebook or watching, watching YouTube videos. You have no idea how many people I see, like they turn on their phone, put it sideways, put on the video and they put it right there so they can watch a YouTube video. I'm like, oh my God. Brian Pauling put in here, just like we were talking about, they will eventually use taxpayer dollars to build an infrastructure to accommodate autonomous only routes or lanes that never, that Never need to come in contact with human drivers. And I, I think that was 100% yeah. correct that they will eventually do that. And I think that's how they will get more people to switch over to it as well. And eventually that, that would flip. Like uh, right now, those lanes are probably going to be the small ones. And eventually as autonomous vehicles get a larger population, then those are going to well, be I the ones that you drive. Thing, it, and, as an incentive, it's like, hey, uh, we're going to do one lane of the current infrastructures. Now all the cars on the road, instead of having four lanes, now only have three lanes operating because this one's for autonomous vehicles only then people are gonna be like man screw this i'm gonna go buy one of those autonomous vehicles so i can get there faster well, and they're gonna and say then, that they're on stop gonna... and go traffic and the autonomous vehicles they're all consistently just blowing past yep. them yep. so yeah it's gonna be exciting and then another thing that's pushing this i mean i was reading this article that uh, the pay for truckers is soaring because of the shortage so it's it's to uh, one person it went from forty thousand dollars to seventy thousand dollars. I saw some articles like they're trying to move oil around in the in South Texas and they're making six figures yeah. moving oil around in South. So Texas. we're shutting down uh, prime homes for the next year. Uh, we're we're going to be moving truck oil, dri- move truck drivers. <laughs> uh, the massive shortage of truck drivers in the U.S. is boosting drivers' pay, but it isn't enough to fill the job vacancies in the industry. So they had this truck driver, 47 years old, um, that his salary increased to 70 grand from 40 grand a few years ago. And he said that in April that it would increase truckers pay. So this is, uh, let's see, who's this guy? Um, Roll Transportation, Roll Transport, a company, a truck driving company, said they will increase pay for the second time this year. In total, it said the its salaries would be around four to six thousand dollars higher. Uh, driver capacity and staggering e-commerce sales have been have made trucking expensive. Insider reported in September that data indicated retailers were spending more than thirty percent more than they were in 2019 to transport their goods via truck. Our customers have been very understanding and it's necessary to raise rates. I could literally hire 500 to 1,000 more drivers. We have the business offerings from customers to keep them busy. So again, autonomous vehicles, especially the way that like Andrew Yang had talked about it. Like if you have one guy sitting 
in a in a room with the screens and everything, and that one guy can control two or three trucks that don't ever need to stop. I mean, yeah. supply chains are no well, longer affected. That's part of the, the, the big effect of, of like 5G networks. It's like yeah. The reason they can't do that now is because the networks aren't there to support that kind of transfer and, of and data how, real, real time. Like You can't have yeah. any lag. Like And like if you're driving a truck and there's a two-second lag, I mean, even a second lag. Oh, yeah. You can no. never have that. Like It needs to be instantaneous. Well, that's, that's what one they of the big talked about with, like 5G. The, with the Tesla cars and everything because they were hooked up to 5G and they're like, they can anticipate, not necessarily anticipate a problem, but they can react to it much quicker than any human. Yeah. You know, and that's any human that's paying attention. Now add a distracted driver to that. It's even, you know, a ridiculous difference. So then you add 5G technology that because of that and satellites, that's why trucks can, like the article said before, they can see 3,200, uh, was it feet? 3,200 ahead of them because of that because they through satellites they can actually see the whole so if there is an accident far ahead or something happened the truck already knows that and it starts adjusting way back there you understand? or, or so, go to an alternate route yeah uh, it doesn't like, need hey, to re recalculate yeah, but it doesn't need to like <laughs> slam style. on the brakes it does, yeah. unless like obviously a person and or a car i mean drives you've like seen it like up in the northeast those videos during those ice storms where those, those you get that flash ice that appears on mm -hmm. highways and it's foggy and you see those semi trucks going 40 miles an hour with the brakes locked slamming into all those oh. cars like oh man that ahead of time like if a truck was involved in that kind of accident miles back yeah uh the traffic would start diverting stopping slowing down moving around like the the human lives would be saved like it would drastically be saved i, w I would imagine from stuff like that and i oh, think it's I a agree. good idea but it's also that transition period is going to be difficult to do because you look at some people it's like they can't afford a forty thousand dollar autonomous vehicle can't they though like everybody can afford brand. we've been to the yes. straight ghetto and you see people with freaking fifty, sixty thousand dollar vehicles in their yeah. house and but i like, mean there's gonna be some ah. people that can't and, and some people that can uh and i think it's it's like everything you're gonna have maybe tax advantages uh you know kickbacks whatever it is you already to, do if you or, buy an electric yeah. vehicle but not just electric but an autonomous because to the city to everything it's like yeah saves lives it's gonna be crazy i mean i think the car insurance industry oh. is probably gonna oh. get pissed because now it's like, uh, you guys aren't getting into accidents? What the hell's going on here? Uh, yeah, and then their premiums just like start going down, but then their business expands. They get start swallowing up, consolidating, buying smaller insurance companies, their book of business, bringing costs yeah. down. Or it's well, like, obviously, they got to adapt. I'm just yeah. saying, like, you know, it's going to be a huge hit at first for insurance companies because, like, you make money off collisions, you know? I, no, they make money uh, off people not having collisions. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, right, because... They get paying your premiums, the premiums and never using They it. don't want to use them. It's like they want people. They don't want people to get an accident. But Pollution centers are yeah, going to hurt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what long term? But though it's like their premiums are going to start going down. Yeah. But it just goes like their margins stay the same. The prices come down. But now it's like, yes, but you're used to be making X number of dollars per customer, and now that's gone down to. Well, you just need more customers at that point. Yeah, that's where I think you're going to have a lot of consolidation among stuff. But I don't think it's going to be hap anything that happens overnight um, for that area. No, of course. But I do think that where he said that, or the McDonald's guy, he was saying that this technology is going to take years. I, I don't think it's going to take as long as a lot of people think. When you look at technology and how quickly technology advances, how exponential, like, you know, like we always talk about how you had, you know, it took forever to get a TV and then to go from color, from black and white to color took some time. Then from color to plasma took a shit ton of time. Then plasma LCD, 
LCD to LED, LED to 4K, 4K to 8K. And it's like every technology just keeps incrementally getting yeah. better, faster. Well, I think so, and one of the things with this, is like the biggest hurdle is the adoption. It's not going to be the technology's there. They could do it in a, in a heartbeat, but it's also like, are the people going to allow it happen? You have people that are 50, 60, 40, 50, 60 years old. They're like, I will never let my car have full autonomous vehicle yeah. to it. It's like, I think that's going to be the biggest hurdles getting over the acceptance of. I don't, I don't know. Public. I mean, if, if this pandemic has taught us anything is how quickly people could adapt to what everybody calls the well, new when normals for, when they're forced to. Well, but then you also see how quickly they're like that. I didn't like that. Like you look at the work from home model aspect where a lot of people and a lot of businesses are like, well, it was like, we had to do yeah, it. But who's going to go to autonomous and say, I didn't like, driving much quicker, getting there faster, not having to be there. I can watch anything. I could just hang out. Yeah. Who's going to say, no, I want to go back to driving. I mean, I think there'll be eventually like a flashpoint that it's like happened, but it's going to yeah. be very slow to go and then it takes off. But speaking of uh, autonomous vehicles, one of the biggest one is Elon Musk with uh, Tesla. And uh, an article I found, uh, you go, as interesting, uh, Michael Burry. If those of you don't know the name, he was the famous investor from the big short that shorted the housing market that made a shit ton of money from that. Oh, we created, what was it, the mortgage default swaps? Yeah, the credit default swaps. Credit default. Um, so he reveals that he has a $530 million bet against Tesla. So the famed investor, Michael Burry, on Monday revealed in a regulatory filing a short position against Tesla, against Tesla worth more than half a billion. Burry, one of the first investors to call on call and profit from the subprime mortgage crisis is is long puts against 800,000 shares of of Tesla or 534 million by the end of the first quarter according to the filing with the US Securities and Exchange Commission. Oh. Shares of Tesla fell more than 4% on Monday bringing its month to date losses to nearly 20%. Burry previously mentioned in a tweet which the later he later deleted deleted that Tesla's reliance on regulatory credits to generate profits is a big red flag. As more autonomous producers produce battery electric vehicles of their own, ostensibly fewer will need to purchase environmental regulatory credits from Tesla, which they have done in order to become compliant with environmental regulations. In the fourth quarter of 2020, Tesla's $270 million in net income was enabled by its sale of $401 million in regulatory credits to other automakers. Mm-hmm. And my thoughts on that are, can Tesla continue to be the industry industry leader? Can it innovate and, and bet against Musk in his abilities? Because like, if you look at the history and stuff like that, it's like, can he be an industry leader? Can they innovate? It's like, and get away from these credits. It's like their business is very dependent on those things. Yeah. But Musk has shown time and time again that he can do the unthinkable, like literally taking a rocket, shooting 8,000 to the sky, letting it free fall back to earth and landing the SLB. Like and being able to use it, not blow up, like that's insane. So the rock is called SOB. Yeah, sob. I yeah. honestly, I don't look at this necessarily as a bet against Tesla or Elon. I just look at it, and this is something that you and I have spoken about plenty of times. That it's been speculative growth for a lot of these companies. Where we've seen Bitcoin, right? That went up to like sixty thousand, and then it freaking crashed to like thirty, and now it's down there trading in a little range. We'll see where it breaks out to, but 
it's been speculation that's propped up. It's been people that are like, wow, oh. Tesla, he, Elon's so well, cool. Let me buy the stock. And it's, it's like, there's I, no. Fe- that's one thing I thought of too. It, uh, yesterday, I was thinking, like, God, no wonder some of these stocks have gone through the freaking moon. It's like you gave everyone of the age of 18 with the technology of Robin Hood 1400 bucks. Like most of these kids at 18, 19, 20 years old, like their bills aren't even 1400 a month. No. And They're then you give them this money, parents. like, what the yeah. hell do I do with it? They couldn't go to bars. They're not old enough to drink. It's like, but I can open this Robinhood app. And then all of a sudden, like, it's Become starts, a millionaire. Yeah. And then you see like, these people trading and all these things. You see, like, well, their friends start talking about it. McDonald's workers, Chick-fil-A workers, all these workers are starting to talk about, like, well, I got my money. And then I started playing this app. And now it just got this huge windfall to where, like, I agree with you. It's not a bet against Musk himself or Tesla's ability. It's like, it's a bet against its being able to maintain its current high price. And, and that's the thing is like Tesla does have a value, an actual value. And I don't think it is what the market is saying it is. You know, unlike, let's say, Amazon. Amazon can prove a lot more value, let's say, than Tesla because Amazon is damn near a freaking monopoly, right? I mean, they control like damn everything that you can possibly want. They, they're having access to it. Where Tesla, on the other hand, is like, oh, no, I mean, you've been kind of up until now, you've been, you know, ma- getting by through government subsidies. So it's, you know, you're not really like a profitable company, but you're still worth quite a bit. You've innovated a lot. You own a lot of tech and everything. That being said, again, I don't think that this is uh, necessarily a bet against Elon or Tesla, but I do think it's a bet more against, you know, what we saw in Bitcoin and and, and those drops and that level of speculation. Uh, I did want to touch on before we wrap up is this article that I saw. So... There's a lot of people that we follow that have not, not, not just left California. They left the whole country and they moved to Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico has much better tax advantages and savings and everything like that. So a well, lot for of a reason, too, it's like it's a U.S. territory. They want people to move there with money to invest at territory to prosper. Right. Exactly. So you have the ultra rich fleeing to Puerto Rico. Uh but now the IRS is following them. <laughs> so <laughs> private wealth clients, hedge fund managers, and cryptocurrency traders flee into Puerto Rico for its huge tax breaks and to escape President Joe Biden's proposed capital gains tax increase are now the focus of a sweeping IRS review. The country's tax collector quietly launched a coordinated campaign in late January to examine individuals who took advantage starting in 2012, of, the, of uh, tax incentives designed to lure high net worth individuals and corporations to Puerto Rico. More than 4,000 mainland U.S. residents and firms have moved to the territory between 2012 and 2019, revealing potential, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in lost tax revenue to the U.S. government, according to an IRS report. Individuals have already started receiving requests for information according to tax attorneys that advise clients on federal income tax issues under Puerto Rican tax incentive laws. More audits are anticipated now that the U.S. tax filing deadline has passed. The IRS doesn't start a campaign and not follow through, said Jay Clark, uh, an international tax lawyer with Kaplan, whatever. Uh, there are, there are going to be a lot of audits at issue are taxpayers who may have excluded income subject, 
subject to U.S. tax or failed to file and report income altogether when they moved to Puerto Rico, according to the IRS notice. The agency is also targeting those who claim to be bona fide residents of Puerto Rico, but may be erroneously reporting U.S. income to evade taxes. The IRS's uh, push is taking place as Biden's proposed tax increase have triggered moves by America's wealthiest from high-tax states like New York and California, while hedge funds um, have moved to establish subsidiaries on the island. And Exodus Point spokesman uh, declined to comment, blah, blah, blah. It also comes amid a wider crackdown by the Treasury Department, which recently released estimates showing wealth, wealthy taxpayers as a, group, as a group are hiding billions of dollars in income. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has previously warned that if left unaddressed, the tax gap could grow to $7 trillion over the next decade. The IRS's uh, report to Congress calculated that more than 1,900 applicant corporations, LLCs, partnership, and other types had been granted tax benefits under the Export Service Act as of March 2020, based on partial information provided by Puerto Rico. Act 20 offers entities a 4% corporate tax rate on business income and 100% tax exemptions on dividends. That provision, along with the Individual Investors Act, have now been consolidated into a new incentive law to attract individuals and investments to the island. So... There's, there's a couple things to address in this, right? One is there's a lot of people, especially these uh, crypto millionaires that are, don't understand economics, they don't understand anything, that they just say, oh, I can move there and not pay taxes? Let me move. And it's like, no, there's a way that you can move there and not pay yeah. taxes. Are you doing the right thing? You need to be educated on what the policies are. You need to be educated on what it actually means to move there and not pay taxes and not just assume that because you move there, you now don't have to pay taxes, right? And it seems like a lot of people are going with that mentality in mind. And then the next point is like, when they're trying to raise taxes, you just see now how many people leave, how much money leaves, how many businesses, innovation, everything leaves to places that give tax incentives. So one thing that you and I have always talked about is like lower taxes to incentivize growth, raise taxes to supposedly collect for infrastructure spending, right? Um, but then you hurt growth, you hurt innovation because then those people that have money, they don't have money because they're idiots. You know, they're going to find other ways of keeping their money. So, and that's what we're seeing. And, but what we're also seeing is the IRS is going to, and go wherever it needs to go to collect well, like, their I like that comment where he said when the IRS plans to do something they follow through with like yeah when you have an unlimited budget of the US Treasury behind you it's like yeah they're going to follow through with that well, project and when you can go back to like they said 2012 or they can go back as far as they want pretty much and, and come after you anyway like they can start this is something that always I think should be a very big warning to people is like just because you got away with it now doesn't mean that you got away away with it forever, right? Like, yes, this tax year, maybe you got away with it. But five years from now, 
10 years from now, they can, I, they the, can the come out with a new the, law or whatever, and it's like, yeah, the you're law, in. Like the look back, look back period, I think it's like they can audit back to three years unless they find something that was like, like mm, somebody, something fishy was going on here, they can go back to five, and then it's like, no, like somebody was legitimately breaking the law, they knew they were breaking the law, we can go back to seven. Auto back to seven. Oh, and I, I think it's also like kind of like when we get uh, inspectors coming to our properties, right? That it's all subjective. It's like, I, you know, oh, we can only go back three years. But if we feel like this and this, then we could probably go back a lot further. And then if we need to, we'll maybe modify the law so we can go back even further, right? Because we'll justify how many millions, billions, or even Janet Yellen saying seven trillion in the next decade. I mean, that's, I think, enough motivation for any government to say, yeah, let's modify that law and go collect that $7 trillion. Yeah. You know, so as business owners, as investors, yes, be smart, understand taxes, understand the law. It's, it's not un-American to not pay taxes because there's a law written that you don't pay taxes when you contribute to the country. Create jobs, when you create housing, when you invest in the country. You get benefits as you should. You're contributing, yeah. right? So make sure you're looking at those laws before you're just like, hey, I'm going to move to Puerto Rico and sell my crypto and be a, a millionaire in the beach. Oh, you might get hit with a nice little tax audit and you got to pay yeah. a large percentage plus interest on penalties and all back payments that you didn't pay. And you I mean, might it's, go, thing, it's very interesting. Like you're crypto millionaire and you become a global nobody. You have no home country. You carry your digital currency in your wallet, and you can convert it into local currencies yeah. and things like that. It's like, but that's I mean, good. But that's well, the, that's a very interesting lifestyle. It's like some of the big crypto uh, millionaires in them. They they've moved. I want to say it was Thailand where they moved to because they have no like pretty much capital gain sacks or anything like that. So it's like all the money you make is just yeah, Singapore. Singapore. Okay. Yeah, but it's just one of those things too. Like, you have all your money, you move to Singapore, or your crypto, you move to Singapore. But then it's like the lifestyle you'd live at that. Yeah, point. you can't get pizza there, right? <laughs> That's what I'm more worried about. It's like I'll pay taxes to have uh, American like, food. But then could you? How easily could it come back to the United States? Like you, like to start a business in certain places, like with that money, like it's it very difficult. Like it's like you could never come yeah. back to the United States and start a business from there. Uh, because like now you sell that crypto like you're back on that that the the radar of the IRS well, yeah because like you gotta countries. now you gotta funnel that money back into the country yeah and you, gotta you gotta start like doing some laundering and things like that to where it's like mm. yeah it's a lifestyle to where it's like you aren't gonna be living in developed oh, I countries don't, I don't advocate it for damn sure I'd rather pay my taxes and still stay in this country than go somewhere else um, but you know we just zone everybody's got their thing but with all that being said we are at the end of our two hours. So anything you want to say before we wrap up, sir? All right. Enjoy well, the weather. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Enjoy, the, enjoy the, the sun was out earlier. Now it's getting cloudy and getting ready. Enjoy the rain that we doesn't seem to end. Um, with that being said, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Hit that thumbs up button. Let your wow. friends know about what we do. We're here every Friday morning sharing everything that we can that's going to help you make better decisions in your business, in your investing, in your life as you move forward. With that being said, thank you all for watching and we'll catch you all next week. Bye-bye.